how the coronavirus may impact cybersecurity and privacy risks in healthcare, the ongoing evolution of ransomware, and where the biggest VC funds are placing their cybersecurity bets. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. A lot can change in a week. We're now facing what is officially a global pandemic with the spread of COVID-19, and as an industry that's been discussing viruses in a purely digital form in recent years, the impact of a biological one is truly upending the world we live in. In this week's slice of cybersecurity audio wisdom, we'll have ISMG's executive editor, Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, discussing recent trends in cybercrime he delved into through interviews at RSA. We also have ISMG's SVP of Editorial, Tom Field, discussing cybersecurity investment trends with ForgePoint's co-founder and managing director, Don Dixon. But first up, ISMG's executive editor of Healthcare Info Security, Marianne Kolbesuk-McGee, recently interviewed Stanley Mierza of Keene University in Union, New Jersey, who's a digital health expert on cyber risk management. The topic was cybersecurity and privacy risks involving the fast-evolving global coronavirus outbreak, and potential concerns relating to the technology assessments during trial or vaccine research. Here he is. Some of the top security and privacy concerns with regard to COVID-19 or the coronavirus that I foresee, especially when it comes to global public health, surround several different segments. So the first I'll talk about is clinical trials. In my experience over many years working in technology, in cybersecurity, in public health, there are activities that take place where one is required in the interest of security and monitoring to introduce something called a site monitor. A site monitor, typically in clinical trials and research around issues such as COVID, ensure that a person or team goes out to a site to ensure that standardized operating procedures when it comes to the technology or the trial itself are being followed. There are many, many subtasks that are included in this work. Technology as well as items related to security have to take place. So with the emergence of coronavirus or COVID-19, it's possible here that there'll be less site monitoring visits, which typically, as I said, take place in these trials. And those are performed to eliminate and evaluate proper cybersecurity and, and technology operations. This could lead to greater cybersecurity vulnerabilities being introduced, not being monitored. So I would state that right now we're talking about China. There's other countries as well. That is one concern that I would have around these visits that should take place during the site monitoring effort. The second thing I would also state is there are drug makers today in the U.S. who are involved in clinical trials, some that I'm familiar with that I've worked with in partnership in other trials related to HIV preventions. They also work on other viral diseases such as Ebola, but they're now embarking on clinical trials to take place primarily in Asian countries and those countries that have high numbers of diagnosed cases. Now, the drug is being tested as we speak in Wuhan, China, the epicenter of the virus. And other companies are actually working on uh, developing vaccines as well. But also from a cybersecurity concern, I would focus a little bit on the data collection in these trials, as I said earlier, around site monitoring and adherence to medication, because that's while you're doing trials, one of the things that are critical is that the participants are adhering to the medication being managed. The other thing, you know, with regard to cyber and these trials, I would be a little bit concerned around 
maintaining confidentiality and integrity of the data collection. For example, is the data and the knowledge that is being collected at the trial sites being provided to the drug makers unfettered? If we don't have folks traveling out from, let's say, an organization that's heading up the clinical trial based in the U.S. and they're not going out, are we getting firsthand information? I think that would be a concern. This third item is the source data. Source data is critical in trials, and where is this source data being saved? Now, the source data could be the data around the trial itself. It could be biomedical data. It could be adherence and acceptability data. And this is all technical, right? We're saving this. These are technology systems that save the information. How sure are we that the patient information is being kept private, which is crucial in such a delicate and sensitive issue? So when it comes to this idea around as this evolves, these are some of the current concerns. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. While our collective eyes and ears may be focused elsewhere with the coronavirus, it's worth noting that cybercriminals will not stop for anybody and that the avalanche of ransomware attacks that has been the bane of our industry for the last few years has not abated. At the RSA conference the other week, ISMG's executive editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz, conducted a number of interviews on the theme of cybercrime and specifically ransomware. Here's his report. Last month's RSA conference in San Francisco was a great time to discuss one of my favorite topics, cybercrime. Cybercrime remains a hot topic, and of course, one of the most damaging forms of it today is ransomware. The early days of ransomware featured shotgun-style prey-and-spray attacks, with criminals largely infecting any system their malware managed to touch. But the market has continued to evolve. Now, many types of ransomware used by criminals operate on a subscription model, not unlike Netflix or Disney+. Ransomware-as-a-service offerings, such as Sodanokibi, also known as Reevil, give users or affiliates the latest version of the crypto-locking malware, coded to their unique affiliate ID. When a victim pays, affiliates can receive up to 70% of the ransom, with the Sodanokibi operators typically taking a 30% cut. The operators have continued to add a host of new features, such as stealing data before crypto-locking systems, so affiliates can leak the stolen data via a dedicated website to try and force more victims to pay. Sodanokibi allows criminals to focus on infecting systems rather than developing their own ransomware. And that's freed some attackers to become much more specialized at network intrusion. Ransomware is moving away slightly from the end users, who, like your mom and pop and the, the vacation photos being encrypted. It still happens. That's John Foker, head of cyber investigations and red teaming for McAfee's Advanced Threat Research Group. Prior to joining McAfee, Foker worked at the Dutch National High Tech Crime Unit investigating advanced forms of cybercrime. He says many ransomware attackers have been hacking into larger and thus potentially more lucrative targets. The news is dominated by larger corporations being breached. And what we see is that they charge a lot more money. So the ransom is much higher than demand. And that actually breeds a kind of an influx and a higher demand for targeted networks. But that will also has a higher demand for a macro builder, for a crypto services. So all the adjacent services that form 
that whole chain to commit cybercrime or to help facilitate, for instance, ransomware, they grow from this, this trend what is going on right now. Cybercrime has long functioned as a services economy. A few years ago, leading experts said they thought only about 200 different individuals were responsible for the vast majority of all of the tools and services being supplied to and tapped by criminals operating online. There are now so many products and services and vendors out there that you can go from having nothing but a laptop and a desire to become a cyber criminal to being a cyber criminal just by buying these services that already exist. You don't even need to have a lot of your own know-how. That's Liv Rowley, a threat intelligence analyst at Blue Live, which has just released a new report on the cybercrime services economy. Rowley told me that cybercrime tools are continuing to become more powerful as well as easy for any wannabe cyber criminal to procure. I would definitely say that we're seeing more and more tools out there. Um, I mean, this has been around for a while. We've talked about spe specialization of cyber criminals offering these tools for forever now, um, but it does seem like they're becoming more common and they're becoming quite cheap. Uh, one of the things we looked at was pricing of malware services. And I mean, you can buy some of the top named information stealers right now for like $85, I think one of them is going for. And that's like one of the best ones out there. So it's definitely becoming a more accessible market. As attackers gain easier and less expensive access to more powerful attack tools, the onus remains on defenders to keep their eyes peeled for these types of attacks and, of course, to ensure they have the right defenses in place. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. In a crowded cybersecurity marketplace, it's challenging for newcomers to not only get funding, but also to rise above the noise and get attention. This is where venture capital firms can help, says Don Dixon, co-founder and managing director of ForgePoint Capital. ISMG's SVP of editorial, Tom Field, had the opportunity to speak with Don at the ISMG studio at RSA. Here's an excerpt of that conversation. Don, as you evaluate potential investments, what are some of the criteria that separate those you do invest in from those you walk from? Uh, boy, it all gets down to simple rules of thumb. How big and fast-growing is the market? How unique is the product or service? How, uh, how good is the management team? Uh, what is their go-to-business strategy, go-to-market strategy? And then finally, what's the investment opportunity that I have to make in the company? you got $450 million to spend. You're burning to spend it. What are the technologies you're bullish on in 2020? Well, what we hear from the CISOs has to do with the problem that big banks have 75 products that they have to integrate, all right? Medium-sized and small companies can't do that. We have to prepackage it. We have to make it very elegant, and we're working on that. Uh, chief privacy officer is saying, hey, look, if a consumer says, delete my account, that sounds like a simple request, but it's a huge technology problem in order to find where all their data is, and then assemble it, and then delete it. So privacy engineering is a big part of what our go-forward strategy is going to be. So in the wake of GDPR, CCPA, this privacy imperative, you're listening a lot more to chief privacy officers. Sounds easy, very hard to implement. Do you help broker the conversations with CISOs as well? Those aren't traditionally strong relationships. Uh, we get uh, our trusted CISOs together, uh, and one of the things that we actually do is we pick up the phone, uh, we know which CISOs have which problems, and then we will introduce the company into that CISO. 
Don, you're in a unique position, and, and you're a good broker for us as well. Thank you for helping us rise above the noise. So okay. Appreciate your time and insight. Fist bump. Been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.